Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12, Jesus has words for a church in a city called Pergamum. Let me read it to you. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even the day, in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give them some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Jesus has some stern words in the midst of this letter, so it's easy to forget how he opens up with praise. He praises them for being faithful through some very difficult times. Pergamum, like these other cities that, that were written in Revelation, they had their temples to various gods. Pergamum, perhaps more than the others. It was a city full of idolatry, and it was also the center of that emperor worship I've told you about a couple of times recently. Everyone was expected to burn incense to Caesar and to call him Lord. And Christians, Christians said, no, we have one Lord. His name is Jesus Christ. And if they did not offer up incense, they sometimes faced severe consequences, even death. And it's, it appears that Antipas faced death. When it says that Satan lives in this city, it's probably a reference to that emperor cult that was taking place. So in the midst of this, the Christians there remain faithful to Jesus when it would have been easy to just throw their faith overboard and mix in with the rest of the culture. They stood for Christ, and that counts for something. I wouldn't put us quite in that category, but, you know, some of you are here this morning having given up a lot to follow Jesus Christ, perhaps having suffered a lot, sometimes being deeply discouraged in your faith because, well, because you suffered reverses or you struggled with your own faults and flaws. There may be a lot of reasons why you have been tempted to just step out of church. Someone told me just last week, you know, I've just been avoiding church because I feel like I don't really deserve to be there. My life just isn't what it ought to be. And so you may be in a situation like that, and maybe you're here in church for the first time in a long, long time for some reason such as that, and yet here you are, 
And those of you come week by week, here you are. We are way past the Bible Belt days. We're way past cultural Christianity where it was in your best interest to go to church whether you're a believer or not, believer or not. You go to church now out of conviction. So whatever faults you might have, however you might fall short, that counts for something, that you identify with Jesus Christ in a culture that increasingly is turning against Christ. So Jesus praises the church in Pergamum, and I have no doubt that Jesus is pleased with those of us who stand by him in these days. And yet, in spite of that, Jesus says, I do have something against you. That is the church in Pergamum. It's a little vague. It's unclear, as we read it 2,000 years later, precisely what the problem was. He speaks of Balaam some prophet Balaam. He's using the name of that unfaithful prophet in the Old Testament for a person of that time. That's not their actual name. That's who they are spiritually. So he speaks of Balaam and he speaks of the Nicolaitans. Only in Revelation 2 do we have any reference to the Nicolaitans, not just in the Bible, but anywhere. So we don't really know what they taught, but if you read this passage, it certainly looks like they're very closely tied with this prophet referred to as Balaam. And that prophet was telling the people, evidently, that it was okay to participate in idolatrous worship. That's when it talks about the food sacrificed for idols. Food after it was sacrificed for idols would sometimes be sold in the marketplace. And Paul says when that's the case, Christians didn't need to worry about that. It's just meat. It's just meat. But the food would also be consumed in the act of worship as well. And that's probably, apparently, what's being referred to here. So they're eating this meat sacrificed to idols because they're participating in worship of these false gods. Now, that may seem extreme and hard to believe, but remember, that's the culture in which they live. That's what everybody was doing. They were this tiny minority. And so they seem to, to be not fitting in, they were hated for it. And then as part of this worship, all sorts of immoral acts went on. Uh, you had in these temples sacred prostitution and other perversions. And so it appears that there were some in the church that were actually saying, you know what, that's okay. That's okay, you can be part of that. Now, here's the thing that's interesting to me. As you read this passage, you notice that Jesus does not say the problem is you've got sinners in your midst. He doesn't say that. Good thing, because we're all sinners, and the church always has sinners in its midst. We have sinners, not just in our midst. We have a room right here full of sinners. But he doesn't say that. What he's talking about is teaching. He says, you have some among you that are teaching that this sort of sin is okay. They're saying that you can be a Christian and continue on in these ways. You can dabble in idolatry. You can dabble in immorality. You can be part of that in some way and still 
still claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That was the teaching that was being put forth. Not all of them taught that, and I'm sure not all of them believed it, but evidently there was a certain level of tolerance within the church for that sort of teaching. Because Jesus says to them, this is what I've got against you. You have some in your midst that are teaching like this, that are saying these things are okay, and they are not okay. That's what he's saying. They are not okay. Whenever the church is a minority, and whenever the church is surrounded by paganism, there is always the temptation to start negotiating with that pagan culture. There's always the temptation to partake just a bit, partly because of the lure of our flesh, but also because we want to fit in. And whenever that happens, there are always those who are quick to tell us, well, you know, that really is okay. And, and they'll figure out ways, theological ways, maybe even quote Bible verses to suggest that it's okay. And that's the thing that was going on then. That's the thing that sometimes goes on today. And that's the thing Jesus can't tolerate. Yes, there are sinners in the church, but Jesus cannot tolerate teaching in his name that suggests such things are okay. The church must stand for the truth, even when it means standing against its own failures and shortcomings. We have to stand by the truth. That's a crucial message for the American church today, that we must stand by the truth. It's so tempting, so tempting to compromise on issues, especially controversial issues, but we must not. That's what the Lord is is making plain here. Now, the reason for this is that the Christian way of life is not just arbitrarily assigned to us. It's not that God just says, well, you know, let's just, let's just command them to do this and that. No, the commands of God are all for our good, and it's essential that we stand for truth and for the truth of God's commands and the goodness of God's commands because there's no blessedness apart from that. I was reading this last week, came across an article that, that investigators are still trying to solve a case that's over 40 years old. Do you remember the Tylenol murders? <laughs> if you remember, it says something about your age. You know, in the next service, I'm going to mention the Tylenol murders. They're going to look at me like, what? <laughs> 1982. Little girl, 12-year-old girl, Mary Kellerman, woke up. She had a runny nose and, her head, and a headache. Her parents said, that's okay. You don't need to go to school today. They gave her Tylenol. Her father heard the bathroom door closed, and then he heard a thud. He went to the door, Mary, are you okay? Didn't hear anything. He opened the door and there she was on the floor. They rushed her off to the hospital and she was pronounced dead there a short time later. She had taken Tylenol that had been laced with cyanide and it killed her. It killed seven others in the Chicago area 
September 1982. One of those who died was a mother of four children. Her infant baby died as well. It's a terrible thing, and you might remember the fear that came as people started wondering, can we trust what we're buying in the store? They never caught the person who did it, but there are still a couple of suspects, one in particular, and investigators are still trying to solve that case. But here's the thing. The whole point of this is that what looked like medicine was actually poison. What looked like it would make you feel better would actually kill you. And that's what it is with what the world has to offer. The reason we can't compromise on these things is not because God is some rigid moralist who wants us to, you know, abide by a lot of arbitrary rules that he establishes. It's because God wants us to thrive. And we can't thrive if we're swallowing the world's poison. And so it's important that the church take a stand because if we're going to get to the destination we seek, which is eternal life, we have to go in the way God sets for us. It's the only way. Mark me down as a big fan of GPS, Global Positioning Systems. Is that right? Oh, man. Before GPS came along, I, I was miserable to ride with. Am I right, Linda? She's nodding her head, yes. I was because I'd get tense. I get nervous, especially in big cities. Linda would want to go into some city and see something, do something. I don't want to go there because I didn't want to drive there. Now, GPS, I don't have to think. You just type in the address and you just follow the instructions. You turn where it tells you to turn and it gets you where you want to go. And what I really like is if you get off the path, it recalculates and it gets you back where you're supposed to go, right? So wrong turns, wrong turns just set you back. They don't, they don't send you in the wrong direction, ultimately. That's the great thing about GPS. Now, what's interesting about me, since I've started using GPS, as we all do now, um, when I get instructions from my phone, I'm perfectly relaxed and I appreciate them. When I get instructions from Linda, <laughs> I tell her to stop nagging me. <laughs> She's retaliated by calling that female voice on my phone, Naggy. <laughs> Where has Naggy told you to go? Now, here's the thing, though. GPS is, is not infallible. Um, actually, Hackers can get in and mess everything up. I don't know if you know that. There's something called GPS spooling. Have you heard of that? It's sort of like the spooling happens on a telephone. Somebody can call you and not their number shows up, but some other number shows up. So you've got hackers that can actually, for a relatively small amount of money, interfere with the signal from the tower that is connecting with your phone. And 
they can, they can cause your phone to think you're in a different location than you really are and that you're taking a different path than you really are. I, I don't really know how it works. I've just told you all that I know. If you need more, where's John Fitch? Is he here this morning? Usually he's over here. John Fitch, he's our rocket scientist. He can tell you how it works. So here's the thing. The GPS is so great because you take a path and you get off track, but then it takes you back onto the right track and you get where you're trying to go unless, unless somebody has messed with it. And then you don't know where you are and you really don't know where you're going. You think you do, you think you do, but you don't. You're just driving along and it says, turn right. And I start to turn right, and Linda says, Paul, you can't turn right. Don't nag me. My GPS says turn right, and I turn right, and I drive right into Lake Waco. (laughs) I told you not to turn right. See, once again, when we talk about God's commands and God's ways, they are not arbitrary. They are meant to keep us safe and cause us to thrive. And so it's absolutely essential that the church uphold the way of life set out by God in the Scriptures. Absolutely essential. If we compromise that, we lose everything. Now, that doesn't mean we've got to be a bunch of moralists pointing out flaws in other people. We're all flawed. We're all sinners. But see, that's not the issue here. The issue here is the teaching of those who would say that those things don't matter. You can just go your own way. That's, that's, that's the old way. You know, we, we know better now. That's what we have to watch out for. So we have to be careful about. Now, again, as I say, it's not like we want to be a bunch of moralists. And it's very important that we understand that as we're upholding these commands by God, we cannot become, we, we can't be holier than thou, hypocritical judges of people. That's, that's not the way it is. That's not the way Christianity works. What Christianity actually teaches is here are the commands of God. Here is what is right. And then it tells us none of us do right. And then it tells us that God through Jesus Christ can save us all the same. You see, God sets out what is right, but none of us does what is right, not perfectly, but God is gracious and God works in our lives all the same. What the world doesn't want is a bunch of holier-than-thou hypocrites. And what the world doesn't get help from are moralists who say, well, you need to do this, you need to do that. What the world needs is the gospel. And the way the gospel talks, well, think about, think about, the, think about the two criminals who were dying next to Jesus on the cross. They were hanging there just like he was. One through his reproaches at Jesus, and the other one said, don't you fear God? We've done what, what deserves this. We have, we, have, we have sinned. We deserve what we're receiving. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he says, Lord, remember me 
And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. You notice what that man does. He sides with Jesus against himself and asks for mercy. It's that simple. He sides with Jesus against himself and asks for mercy. Jesus has done nothing wrong. Jesus is righteous. His way of life is right. I am the sinner. I deserve what I'm receiving. But Lord, remember this sinner. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. The church preaches a gospel that says every sinner can find mercy from God. But we must learn as Christians to side with Jesus against ourselves. We uphold what Jesus teaches. There's no compromise there, but we don't pretend that we've attained and we don't start pointing fingers. We side with Jesus against our own faults, our own flaws, and we say, Lord, remember me. Lord, remember me. See, that's how you uphold the standards of God. You uphold them not by, not by you know, having all your rules and pretending that you reach them. No, you do it by the gospel. Because the gospel, think about the cross. Think about the message of the cross. That itself is gospel. Because in the cross, what do you see? You see God's judgment of sin. You want to know what sin deserves? You want to know what all of us deserve? Look at the cross, and what you see is death. But then consider that the cross that reveals what we deserve is also the power of God to save. The cross brings salvation to us. It both points to our sin and assures us that our sin is atoned for. Both of those things are upheld. So see, we can uphold the truth that God's standards are right, they must be upheld, and we fall short and trust in mercy because Jesus is atoned for. I don't know if I'm making sense to you. Am I making sense? Maybe... One of, one of the most important theologians of the 20th century and, and even into the 21st century is a man named Jürgen Moltmann, a German theologian. He was asked in an interview how and why did he become a theologian, and he said it began in World War II. He was a 16-year-old in Frankfurt, and he was required to arm the battery when, when the Allied planes came in and began to bomb. And the city, and when his friends right next to him died, though he was raised in a secular home and really knew nothing of God, he started thinking about God and he started wondering, why am I alive when they are not? He was soon drafted into the military and, and eventually became a prisoner of war in Scotland. And it was there that everything he thought he knew and believed just began to crumble. He and the others are gathered in a common meeting place and, and military personnel came in and put up one day 
photographs of the dead in Belzen and Auschwitz, bodies piled up high. Of course, this is as the war is winding down and then ends. They're still there. There were no comments. They just put up the pictures and they said nothing to the German soldiers. Moltmann looked at those. He was overwhelmed. This is what we were supposed to be fighting for? This is what it's all about? He said some of the soldiers decided that's just a bunch of propaganda. It's not real. They're just making it up. They didn't want to face it. Others said, well, yes, but look what they've done to us, trying to justify things. Others said, I'm done. I'm done. I'll never go back to Germany. Moltmann himself said he didn't feel like he could breathe. He felt this, this horrible shame that came over him, and he had no way to overcome that shame until... He opened a Bible that they had there, and he began to read the Bible, and he came to the, to the account of Christ's crucifixion. He was gripped by that. As he read the words of Jesus, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He realized that, that here was one in the place of the sinful and the God-forsaken, that God was present to the sinful and God-forsaken, which he was. At the same time that this truth overwhelmed him, the kindness of the people in the community overwhelmed him. They were allowed by this time to, to leave the camp and actually share meals with the farmers in the area. And he said, their kindness, their kindness and their concern for us shamed us, but also set us free to face our guilt and face our sin without needing to deny it, without repressing it, just facing it like it was. He said, I began to breathe again. My life started, he said, then. He said, I've never, I never made a decision to follow Jesus like we're told we're supposed to do, but he said, I can guarantee you at that moment, Jesus found me. Jesus saved me. But you notice how it happened. You notice how it happened. It was the cross, the message of the cross that allowed him to look honestly at his sin, to realize how wrong it was, to stop denying it, to not cover it up, and yet also not despair. See, to find hope and life. And that's what, that's what we're after. That's what we're after. What people want to do today is they want to relieve the despair and discouragement and heart sickness that people have by saying, you know what? No, all that's okay. You can live anyway. No, don't feel guilty. Don't feel guilty about anything. That's just being true to you, whatever. That's what they say. They're trying to make people feel better that way. But that's just a muddle of compromise. What the gospel says is, no, the sin is real and it'll kill you. But God's grace 
is greater still. Paul, in the most radical phrase in all of religious history, I think, said that the gospel is God justifying the ungodly. Justifying the ungodly. It's real ungodliness we need to be saved from, but we really are saved because of the grace of God. So if you step out to the Welcome Center, you'll see the brick wall and it says, God is good, grace is real, everyone's welcome. And listen, everyone is welcome. Everyone is welcome. Doesn't matter what their background is. Doesn't matter what they're into. Doesn't matter how how twisted up, knotted up their life might be. They are welcomed. And when they come in, they need to know they're welcome. They need to know we love them. Absolutely. But they are welcomed into a Christian church. No one is welcome to come in and try to hack our GPS system. No one is welcome to teach some other way than the way of Jesus Christ. People are welcomed into this church, and if they wish to come as sinners, they can join other sinners. And together we say, this man has done nothing wrong. I deserve to be judged. This man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me. And I would only add, Parents and grandparents, this is something that so desperately needs to be taught to children today. They need to be taught the difference between right and wrong. They need to understand that with absolute clarity. There can be no waffling on those things. It's essential. But they also need to be taught about the scandalous generosity of God's grace. They need to know what is right and they need to know that God is gracious to forgive and transform. We need both. We don't need to muddle it up. We need this this radical polarity of extremes. Sin is really sin and grace is greater still. We need to hold both of those things to be true. That's what God calls us to. I've said a couple of times already, I realize it may be that you haven't been to church for quite some time, and that's okay. It's so good that you're here this morning. What I can tell you is we all need grace, and grace is available. We all need God's help, and help is available. That's really true. Excuses, denial, giving ourselves some justification for things that we know are wrong, that doesn't get us anywhere. But the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ will save us for time and eternity. And I want to invite you as we pray here in the next moments to open your life wide open to God and ask him to come in to your life, to forgive you, to set you on a new path, And if you pray for that, or or you would like to pray for that, when this service is over, I'll be in the front. I'd like to talk with you. I'd like to pray with you. But for now, would everyone pray? Heavenly Father, you are so good and so gracious 
and holy, holy beyond our imagining, and we are not. But we thank you, we thank you that by your goodness and grace, there is hope for us, that we don't have to deny the truth in order to, to be able to live with ourselves. But Lord, instead, we can trust in your goodness and by your power, we can change. We thank you for that. Lord, we pray for any friends that are here this morning that, that are uncertain about their relationship with you or, or uncertain how to go forward. May they find the way through Jesus today. We pray all that in Christ's name. Amen.